you know, like bereavement. You have to talk about that. You have to be able to talk about that. Or sexuality. You, know, you have to be able to listen really well. And not interrupt, but really listen. And also, the most important thing is you have to be able to walk in someone else's shoes. Imagine what it's like for this child that comes into your life. A bit of kindness, a bit of love. It's quite easy, really. Have you found it's the same process as bringing up your own teenagers? Pretty much, yes. I've learned from all of them so much. And I feel that this is my purpose. This is what I'm here for. That's this week's very special guest, my mum, Uda O'Hara, talking about her experience of fostering three teenage boys from Eritrea, Afghanistan and Sudan. Today we're going to explore what it means to be part of a real-life global family. Four years ago, almost to the day, I gained an extra sibling when my little brother Mez arrived in England. Mez hid underneath a Eurotunnel train to enter the UK. He was only 14 at the time, and my parents had just been accepted to foster. So Kent Social Services placed Mez with my family. What happened next is a story of love, loss, laughter, integration, acceptance, compassion and growth. We all gained so much from Mez that it wasn't long before my parents took in another boy, Arash from Afghanistan, and finally my youngest brother Bijo from Sudan. My mum and I talk a lot about Mez in this episode as he's now 18, with his asylum granted, and he's happy for us to share his journey. Just for reference, my mum also refers to my biological siblings Nils, Amber and Finn. He called me mum very quickly. He copied all of you and he, he called me mum and he called dad dad for that reason, which to me makes sense. And I think for him, it was just a way to fit in. And I remember the social worker saying, what's he calling you? Is he calling you mum? And said, yeah, yeah. And she said, does he know you're not his mum? And I said, yes, of course he knows I'm not his mum. But to him, it was very quickly an easy concept. He has a mum in England and he has a mum in Eritrea. And when he speaks to the mom in Eritrea, he sometimes translates for the two of us and we have a little conversation. And she's very, very happy for him to be here, to be looked after. And I'm very happy that I have her blessing. And that's a beautiful thing, I think. I hope that if the roles were reversed, that my kids wouldn't have anywhere to go, that she would look after mine. And I think she would. I remember you telling her he's doing well and that... You loved him and that you were looking after him and that you wanted her to know that. I did want her to know that, that he was in good hands and I'd be looking after him for her because she can't at the moment. And I really felt that sorrow from her that all those years from 14 she had to miss. Well, 13 even. He was 13 when he left his country. And for quite a while she didn't know where he was or whether he was alive or not. And for a mother to go through that, I think it's, it's hell on earth. So to me... I felt blessed that I could do that for her. Do you feel proud when you pick up Mez or you drop Mez off at work and he introduces you as his mum? I feel very proud of him. Very proud. And he jumps out of the car and he says, this is, this is my mum. And I go, yeah, hi. <laughs> People are probably looking at you like, really? Yeah. <laughs> How Funny. is that possible? You look quite different. Like, Is that physically That possible? has happened in a hospital once. Did I ever tell you that story? No. We were in hospital and he had some tests done and a nurse came up and he said, so you're a mesret? And she's, he said, yes. And who is this? And he says, this is my mum. This is your mother? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm his mother. It, and she believing. looked a bit like, hmm, okay. She couldn't question it really. Did you feel like you had to explain? No. He's my boy. He's my, he's my son. 
doesn't really matter how or what. I like to treat him like I treat all my children and I wouldn't explain if I introduce you. This is why my biological daughter is <laughs> born out of me, you know. So no, I wouldn't say this is my foster son. It's it kind of, of has become irrelevant over the years, yeah, hasn't it? Yeah. Do you feel that going through this process has made you realize how much you can feel for somebody who isn't your biological child but becomes your child mm. well from the start when i had kids when i had you i loved motherhood i loved it much more than i ever could have imagined but also from that moment i always thought what would it be like if i adopt or foster a child would i feel the same or even similar or even close it was always in the back of my mind that one day I'd want to find out for myself. When you guys were growing up and moving, moving out, I felt, oh, that job that I've loved so much, it's sort of, I'm not very necessary anymore. I'm a bit redundant, which is natural, and I was happy about that. I was happy to see you all doing your own thing, but I also thought, I need something else, so maybe now is the time for fostering. I was indeed really curious how I would feel about this child that would come into my life. I remember overhearing you telling him, Mez, you do know that we're not just caring for you, we love you. You're listening to the Worldwide Tribe podcast, stories from the refugee crisis. I'm your host, Jazz O'Hara, and together with some very special guests, we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere. We're here to amplify voices, from the people leaving their countries and everything behind them to the volunteers working alongside them. We'll be hearing from those currently living in refugee camps and people working on the front line, the real heroes of today, the humans behind the statistics and the headlines. Join me as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world, our worldwide tribe. So, Mum, let's go back to the beginning and talk a little bit about the fostering process and when Mez first arrived to England and to our family. When you're going to fostering, you can choose. You can go for little kids, you can go for older kids. But I straight away knew I wanted teenagers because, for one, teenagers aren't very popular, mostly. People don't really seem to like teenagers, and I love them. So I always thought, give me the ones that no, no one else wants. Also because it fitted into our lives. And if you foster, you can actually say what you want, boy, girl, age, which is, I think, really quite nice. You can be specific. You can be specific. And I had said at first I would like 16 plus because that seemed to me quite a good age, you know, teenagers that were on the cusp of adulthood. But then when we were going through the fostering process, which takes about nine months, just like a pregnancy, I always think, <laughs> The refugee crisis was happening. So in our fostering course, we were talking about young refugees coming into the country, unaccompanied minors, and would anyone be interested? And on our course, we were the only ones that said, yes, yes, we would be interested. So you and dad out of the whole yes. course? Okay. Yes. No. Out of how many people? 
maybe 16 people, quite a few, but most of them said, oh, really teenagers and foreign teenagers. But I thought, you know, those poor kids, they come into the country, they have no one else. To me, it was like a calling, something I really wanted to do. So that was easy. I said, that's for me. And then in the months leading up to us finishing the course, I suddenly had a dream one night and I dreamt this beautiful young boy was on his way to me. I could see him quite clearly in the dream. He was beautiful. He had a beautiful smile. The next morning I woke up and I said to your dad, he's not 16, he's younger, this boy, and he's on his way. So rang the social worker that day who was a bit surprised to hear from me and I said I have to change the age on my paperwork your criteria my criteria yeah not 16 plus has to be like 12 plus because this boy is coming to me and he's younger than 16 so he must have thought I was a right weirdo <laughs> but, this crazy woman yes, what's she talking about but I didn't care I really didn't care when we finished our the, the process of the, the fostering process it was on a Friday, we finished the process, we got that paperwork, officially we were foster carers. And then by the Sunday morning, we got a phone call saying they had a, a beautiful boy waiting for us. <laughs> he just arrived in England and would we be willing to take him? And I said, yes, yes, that's him. That's definitely him. Your dad straight away looked at Eritrean recipes because we'd never heard of Eritrea and he came from Eritrea. He found an, an Eritrean recipe, a chicken dish. And he went to the supermarket with Amber, who was at home at the time, and bought all the ingredients. And was even trying to find an Eritrean-looking watermelon. <laughs> I don't know what it would look like. <laughs> this but is my sister Amber. She yeah. always tells this story. She says that she was in the supermarket. Dad was lifting up watermelons like, Amber, does this look like an Eritrean melon to you? <laughs> yes, exactly. We had no idea what to expect, really. You know, but he came home with some underpants and socks and food. Dad we, did, right? Dad not, did. Not dad did. Yeah, dad did. But things that we thought would be, would be nice for this boy who was arriving that day. So we had already made his room ready, just like you would do for any child that comes into your life. Like a nursery. Like a nursery. <laughs> but in this case, we had on the bed a toothbrush and, you know, some pajamas and some socks and underpants for him. Later, he told me he saw Finn brushing his teeth. And he thought, okay, okay, I'll, I'll copy him. So he did the same thing. And funnily enough, he has beautiful teeth, but he never really used a toothbrush in his life. We made a meal that day and we were all excited about his arrival. So it was very much, to me, it was very similar to the birth of a child. But then this little person arrives. The taxi arrived outside our house. And he was on his own because there was no social worker on duty that day. He got out and he looked very shy and little and skinny. And I was thinking, what would it be like for you? You know, you're 14. You've made this long journey, which, which had actually taken him nine months, as long as it had taken me to become a, a foster carer. So he arrived that day, Sunday. And he had a bit of paper in his hand with his picture like a mug shot that taken of him that day in the other hand he had a, a bin liner and I had no idea what was in the bin liner black bin liner and I didn't want to ask straight away my mum forgot to finish telling the story about the bin bag but sent me this voice note after I left 
Hey Jazz, I keep on thinking about our podcast and the things I forgot to, to say. It's funny, like I start stories and then don't really finish them. Because I remember I started telling the story about Mez arriving with his black bin liner and me not wanting to ask what was in it. Well, the next day I did ask him and in it I found some of his wet clothes that he wore on his way and he had been lying in a ditch before he got on a train, a ditch with, wet, with water. Anyway, the police very kindly had given him uh, new clothes to wear, dry clothes to wear, which was really nice. And uh, yeah, he was wearing really big flip-flops um, that I'd given him as well. And his wet trainers were in the bag. And funnily enough, the wet trainers, he has treasured all these years. He still has them because to him, they're um, like, what do you call it? Like something to like a keep safe something that's kept him safe on his journey like a lucky charm that he doesn't want to get rid of and i actually think that's a lovely story that i wanted to tell and i forgot anyway there you are maybe you can put it in there for me bye okay back to the story of the day that mez arrived in england and to my family so we introduced him to everyone and you jazz you were so excited i remember i had to calm you down i had to say jazz Take it easy now. This poor boy, he's just arrived. I was so overexcited. It, it literally felt like when Finn was born. When he was born, I was seven. I remember the build-up to that taking so long. And that's how I felt like with Mares. I really, really yeah. felt like it was so overwhelmingly exciting. To- it was exciting. So we had dinner together. And yeah, he was shy. He spoke no English. He tried to be friendly and communicate, but he must have felt really strange. He didn't eat much, did he? He didn't eat much. And he was tired. He was really tired. And I remember the first days, he would be so shocked when I woke him up in the morning. He'd be in such a deep sleep and he would always have his clothes on in bed. I think he was so used to getting up and run. He was not used to taking clothes off and sleep in a nice, comfortable bed. Mm. He hadn't had that for nine months. Really, truly being able to relax. And- exactly. So it took him a while to relax. Every morning he was like, oh, okay, okay, good, I'm here. He didn't wear the pajamas that you got for him. No, he didn't wear the pajamas. <laughs> but I remember him putting those comfy big pajama bottoms yeah. on over his jeans at first. He just learned everything by copying. He copied Finn, he copied everyone else. He watched films slowly, slowly, or actually quickly, quickly. He started to learn everything and he started to adapt. He was very observant. He saw everything, he noticed everything. He was always looking around him. He would ask me if he didn't understand things. In the beginning, we... Uh, we put labels on everything in the house just to teach him English and fridge and on all the fruit and the vegetables. And we tested him all the time. Post-it notes on everything. Yeah. But it worked. And he, he enjoyed that because he wanted to learn. Thing. Once he got a word, we would take it off, wouldn't we? Yeah. So like kettle. And then once he learned that word, the post-it note would go. Even things like the kettle, that was something that he wasn't used to either, was he? I remember him burning his fingers on that yeah. at first. Because he was like a little child in a way that he wanted to try everything and see everything. So he'd go up to the kettle, put his finger on it and go, oh, ow. Didn't realize it was hot. Well, I told you so, but I didn't understand. And I remember his surprise when I took the Hoover out of the cupboard. He said to me, oh, you have very many machines. <laughs> and he loved the, uh, the lawnmower. And he'd be mowing the grass for me. He still mows the grass for you, he? still mows he? the grass for me, yes. Beginning, I say to him, if you mow the grass to do some jobs for me, I'll give you some money. And he said, no, 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 I'm, I'm family. So yeah, what I did those first weeks with him, because it took six weeks to get him into a school, we went everywhere together. 
just like you would do with a little kid, you know, when mm. you're bonding. I had a dog walking business, so I went dog walking every day and he'd go with me. He was really surprised by the way we treat the dogs, the way that we have dog beds and dog coats and leads because in Eritrea, I just walk around freely, apparently. And sometimes we would laugh so much together because next thing we went to the supermarket, he saw a child on the lead <laughs> and his eyes just widened and he just looked at me like, what? <laughs> and I said, yes, in England, things are different. And those sorts of things you can imagine that maybe would be different in Eritrea. But was there anything that you didn't even consider you really had to get used to culturally? Yeah. Or Yes, lots of things. Like, for example, the first time we saw a gay couple, we were again, we were together in the car. And he said to me, is that, is that a boy or a girl? And I said, no, they're two girls. And he said, two girls holding hands? And I said, yeah, yeah, they're gay. And I explained it to him and he said, what? In Eritrea, that would never happen. And I said, well, maybe it would, but maybe people are hiding that in Eritrea. And those things were really, really new to him, really new. And that's been a really beautiful thing for me that actually with all three of them haven't necessarily agreed with some of the things that have been different. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's not even agreement. It's more about they haven't seen it before, but they've been very open to new yes. ideas and really embrace the fact that, okay, we're in England now. It's not necessarily for me, but whoever, whatever you want to do, whoever yeah. you want to be, whoever you want to love, that's mm -hmm. fine with me. Mm -hmm. They are surprised by it. And then they go, okay, well, fair enough. Another new thing for him was racism. He couldn't understand racism at all. So one day he came home from school and he said someone had called him in. Uh, and there was quite an outrage from some of the other students at school. They were shocked. He, he could see that. So I explained to him what it meant. And I remember I had a conversation with you about it. And you said, Mom, do we really have to explain to him? Wouldn't it be nicer to just be ignorant about it? He didn't know any of the history. He'd never heard of apartheid in South Africa. Mm. He'd never heard of slavery. He'd never heard of these things that mm -hmm. we all grew up knowing. And I thought that was a really beautiful thing. So I thought that the longer that we could maintain yes. that, the better. But yeah, I think I was overruled, wasn't I? <laughs> well, I totally agree with you. But in the end, he had to know and he just shrugged his shoulders. I mean, we've had a few other things. People call him black or you're the black boy. And he says, yeah, I know I'm black. You don't have to tell me, you know. Mm. I can see in a mirror. So, which is interesting because we live in a very white environment. Um, I think he was one of three black people in the school, maybe, you know, mm -hmm. it was very few, but yeah, most of the kids were very nice to him. His attitude played a part in that too, right? Because I remember being nervous for him when he first started that yeah. school because the local comprehensive school, there's not many people who have probably heard of Eritrea or haven't traveled very far outside of the UK or outside of even Kent. His story was so far away from mm -hmm. the reality of a lot of the kids that he was in school with. Yeah. And not that, just the kids, the adults too. Yeah, the teachers even. Yeah, because I remember he really wanted to play football. That was the thing he wanted to do most. That's actually what kept him sane in the beginning, you know, football and music, Eritrean music. So I tried to enroll him in the local football club, but they wanted proof of his age. Because if he was over 16, he could not play in the in the under 16s. And I said, well, he hasn't got any ID or anything like that. And the guy said, well, how did he come to England? I said, well, he's a refugee. Mm. But I could see the apprehension in the man's face. He didn't quite get that. He couldn't really quite get his head around the way he, he came here. And in the beginning, he could just train with them and not play any matches until we had proof of his age.
is quite a sad thing for refugees. They are often not believed. Their stories aren't believed and their ages aren't believed. And it's like we want to do anything and everything to prove them wrong. Mess was sure he knew his age. And he said at the time, I'm 14, I, I could see no reason to not believe that. And it was clear. He, he looked he was little. young. He was little. little he was a child still yeah. when he came, wasn't he? Not so much now. Yeah. <laughs> He's 18 now and yeah. definitely much more of an adult. But I he, can understand how annoying it must be if you don't have to do like tests, ask, answer questions about how do you know your age? Well, my mother told me, you know, how do you know your age? Because he had an age assessment, didn't he? Yeah, it was quite a rigorous yeah, yeah. assessment into how old he was. And the reason he had an age assessment, this is also quite interesting, is... When he came into the country, just remember, he was a young boy and he spoke very little English. And they asked him his date of birth and he said, 12-6-2000. But he meant 6-12-2000. So they, they thought his birthday was in June, but it's actually in December. Once in the car, we were talking about birthday. He said something about my, my birthday in June. And I said, no, no, your birthday is December, isn't it? He said, no. And that's when we found out he'd had it the wrong way around. So it was an easy mistake to make. In yeah. America, they do it that way around, they, don't yeah. they? So. And that's how he did it too. So they make mistakes like that. And I, you would think that at the border, when they come in, they realise that some of them aren't sure about which way around we do it. You know, the Eritrean calendar is different from the Completely European different. calendar, right? There can be a lot of misunderstanding yeah. there. And again, that's something I had to learn is how different the culture is, where he comes from. When I started teaching him English, maybe it sounds stupid, but I hadn't realised how different his language was. I'd never seen it written down. When I saw him writing for the first time, I thought, whoa. It looks beautiful, but it's completely unrecognizable. I mean, I speak four languages, but I could not in any way recognize anything in his language. Not when he spoke it, but definitely not when he wrote it. So for him then to learn English, I could suddenly understand how difficult it was. Yeah, because you're literally starting from ABC. What I found amazing when I think back to that time is that he didn't speak any English and we obviously didn't speak his language to Grinya and mm -hmm. even Google didn't have his no, language no, so we couldn't yeah. use Google Translate. Yet we always still managed to communicate. It is, again, similar to when you have a little child and they learn to speak. As a mother and as a father as well, you often know what your child is saying before someone else understands them. And it was the same with Miss. I very quickly learned to know and, and understand the way he spoke. So often I knew what he was saying. We, we always sit down at dinner together in the evening, as you know, Jazz. It's an important part of our lives. And lots of jokes are, are happening around the dinner table, lots of banter. And sometimes very rude jokes, especially when Niels is around. <laughs> and I always said to Niels and to all of you, it's fine to joke. But if Mez doesn't understand a joke, you'll have to explain it. <laughs> yeah, which yeah. led to some awkward moments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he, he understood very quickly, didn't he, Mez? He got to understand the yeah, jokes Yeah, he quickly. actually understood our humour pretty well, right? Yeah. 
And yeah. also he had his own humour. I remember he absolutely loved jumping out at you and he did that to dad all the time. All the time. He? <laughs> and he still does it at times. And every time dad just jumps and gets the shock of his life and mess finds it's hysterical. Yeah, he would sit like, yeah. hide behind doors, sit in cupboards yeah. for like... For ages. <laughs> yes. I guess that was, a, that was a joke that didn't need language that was no. funny in every language. Yes. Um, you know what? We found a lot of things like that, didn't we? We watched programme like Mr Bean yeah. that actually don't require language. Yeah. And we moved moved up from Mr. Bean quite quickly because Mr. Bean is great in the beginning for relaxation, having a laugh, just chilling out together. But very soon we started watching simpler English programs and then he moved up to watching things like The Inbetweeners. <laughs> and at first he didn't quite get it. He just watched it and you could see him soaking it all up. And then I remember about a year after he'd arrived, he watched the whole series again. And he was watching it in his bedroom and I could hear him roaring with laughter. And I thought, oh, he's getting it. <laughs> he understands. <laughs> this is that good was news. after yeah. a year of being at school, mm. I guess. It teaches you a lot. <laughs> and again, you know, going to school really was dropped in a deep end. But he learned really quick and he learned to understand the jokes very quick too. At school, jokes are often a bit rude. So again, I, I was never shy to tell him things about <laughs> sex or jokes or whatever because mm -hmm. I did not want him to feel left out I always said to him okay you might not like this you might not find it funny but it is important for you to know what they're talking about mm -hmm. now and I know you guys often find me a bit embarrassing when I talk about this stuff Say, oh mom you have to tell him about that <laughs> but it's part of life isn't it and I was really touched by some of the people who were so kind to me And maybe they were touched by him, I don't know. But some of the teachers have been amazing. And some of the pupils as well, there was the odd student, went up to him and tried to speak to him. And in the beginning, that's scary for young teenagers. You know, it's quite scary to go up to a boy and you have no idea whether he'll understand you. But yeah, there was definitely one or two that always made an effort. And I've always been very grateful to those people or to be brave enough to do that and to make mess feel welcome. And he did, didn't he? He had a generally positive experience at school. He and did. as I say, I think that that's been a big part to do with his character because I was nervous for him. But actually, yeah. I remember you saying to me, Jazz, he's just come from Eritrea on his own. You know, yeah. he can do this. This is okay for yeah. him and he'll be fine. He was quite tough. He's quite strong. But he was very shocked the first day he went to school here. Yeah, I remember him coming yeah. home. <laughs> he was so looking forward to going. He'd been waiting for six weeks. And when he finally went, he came home and he looked so dejected. He was like, is that a school? People were sitting with their feet on the table, putting their makeup on. He was very shocked. Because in Eritrea, the school system is so rigid and so strict. disciplined and strict. It was, it was very different for him, but he learned to enjoy it very quickly. Yeah, I remember him sitting on the sofa with you on one side of him and dad on the other side, with his head down, just in absolute <laughs> shock. Yeah, yeah, with, yeah, his, yeah. with his brand new school uniform. He got used to it very quick, didn't he? Yeah. Do you remember him having any difficult experiences at school? Well, on the whole, he made the most of it. I mean, it is, of course, hard to be a bright boy and to go into a class which is maybe below your ability because you don't speak the language. And then he was in a class with a lot of other students that don't necessarily want to learn, but he was very eager to learn. So he couldn't quite understand why they were playing up while he was so keen to learn, you know? Mm -hmm. 
But he he just made it work. One of the reasons that he made it work was playing football. Every break time, any lunch time, he would be on the football pitch. And whoever wanted to kick a ball with him, he would be with that person. So that made it for him bearable. It's a good way to make friends, isn't it? So he had coping mechanisms, and that was one of them, football. Do you think that he did have to go through a lot of trauma? Yeah, a little bit similar to you, Just Like when we have nice times here, he feels guilty about having been able to get away from Eritrea and knowing that his family, his brothers and sisters are still there. One of his brothers is actually now in a, in a refugee camp in Ethiopia. So yeah, guilt, I think, is one thing that he feels and felt when things happen. Like at one stage he went to school and a boat full of Eritreans had sunk and it all died and there was nothing about it on the news and nothing was said at school and he was so heartbroken I remember actually sending a, a message to his form teacher and she was really good about it and she took him aside the next day and spoke to him about it because he couldn't understand how the world was functioning functioning normally and not even talking about this disaster that had happened to his countrymen. Those sort of moments I found really hard to see. It was a recurring thing for Mez, wasn't it, that people didn't understand him. People asked him if he was here on holiday and yeah. they didn't understand that he didn't yeah. have a birth certificate or a passport. Yeah. People always ask him where he's from. He says Eritrea and they never are like, oh yeah, no. in East Africa. Every time it's, where? To be honest, I never knew where it was either, but I can understand that for him it was a bit like, what? Why doesn't anyone know about my country? Mm-hmm. And he really feels keen to, to share that now, doesn't yeah. he? Which has been a really beautiful thing for me that we've been doing more and more talks together. And that's a big part of the, the healing process as well for him, isn't it? That now he can actually do something, he can speak out for, for his country and inform people about what's happening. A lot of people said with Mez that we had such an amazing experience that we were lucky, right? Because mm-hmm. Mez fitted in with the family very, very well and he became our little brother immediately, actually. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then you took on a rash and then Bijo and actually that overturned that theory, didn't it? Because three times over, it has been an amazing experience. It has experience. been an amazing experience. A teenagers can be trying to find their own way in life. And push the boundaries a They're little bit. They're trying maybe. to push the boundaries a bit. And when you foster and you have refugees, whether they come from another country or not, they're always going to be teenagers first. And we must remember how we were as teenagers. Maybe some people were really good, but I remember what I was like as a teenager. And your dad definitely remembers what he was like. So, Mum, Mez was the first of three foster mm-hmm. sons, right? Yeah. So what made you want to foster again? thing is, I can't get enough of this... Motherhood malarkey. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like it's the job I'm best at. I just love doing it. All of them are different. And I try not to compare them to each other. So let's talk about who came next. Next came Arash. He's from Afghanistan. Horrible things had happened to him. He was very traumatised. And my heart broke for Arash. And then ten months ago came Bijo a lovely boy from Sudan. And again, that's another little miracle to me. So BJ's the newest, Mm -hmm. yeah? He also didn't speak, and Arash too didn't speak much English when they arrived, Mm -hmm. did they? So has it been similar with both of them when it comes to learning? Yes, very similar. 
So again, we sit down, we do a lot of lessons, we talk all the time, I listen to them, and I encourage them to send me text messages. So we talk about the text messages when they come home, because sometimes I haven't got a clue what they're saying. <laughs> they're like, what? <laughs> We've had yeah. to do some serious deciphering. Oh, <laughs> yes. It's funny, because Arash sent me a message once, and I did not know what it meant. And I asked Mez, who was with me, Mez, what do you think this means? Remember that Mez said it out loud, kind of phonetically. Or oh, something like pray fish. Did he actually mean? It meant mean? like when my praying is finished. So Mez got it, didn't he? And yeah. sometimes you have to read things out phonetically and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. it could sound like. Yeah. But yeah, written down, it didn't make any no. sense. But that's, yeah. that's how they learn. That's how I learn as well. Dinner times are always lovely at her house. And I, I, I love learning from the boys. I love their cultures. The dishes they make for us. He really loves cooking and he makes fantastic food. He just goes to the kitchen and says, I'll cook something for you, mom. We're all eating different things. Amber eats vegan. Bijo eats halal meats. Ezret is a Christian, so he prays before his dinner. Bijo he prays at other times. So we're all different, but we respect each other's differences. We have different religions, different eating habits, but it's great. Like Bijo, he learned really quickly that Amber was vegan. It was alien to him at first. He'd never heard of such a thing. But then he, he got it and he said, oh, I'll cook for you. I'll cook for you. And I think Alma was a bit worried, like, will he cook with animal products? But no, he understood and he cooks things for her. So it's so lovely to see that, that sort of respect for each other and understanding of each other's ways and beliefs. And we talk about it very openly. For the boys, it's difficult sometimes because they come to a different culture, a different country. And they have to decide which which part of their culture they want to hold on to and which part they want to maybe be a bit more flexible on. It can be quite difficult, especially when you're a teenager. Everything is a little bit unsure, maybe. But they're doing that very well. As people, we can be so flexible. And if we are loving, we can find love everywhere and anywhere. I do always try to really um, show an interest in uh, in the boys, in in their background. I'm not scared to talk about it. Even if their mother is not alive anymore, I still ask, mm -hmm. what was she like? Do you remember? And Tell me the, about it. That's the case for Arash and Bijo, right? Yes. So Bijo's mum died when he was very little, so he doesn't really remember her. It's new for him to have a mother at all. And he said that to you, didn't he? Yes, he says he's very pleased that he now has a mum. Some people would say, you're not my mum. Mm -hmm. And I understand that too. But yeah. I'm very happy to be their mom if they want me to, you know. So you let them lead on that decision, basically. I let them lead, yeah, and I follow. Whatever they want, I'm happy to be. If I'm just a friend to help them, that's fine too. You can't force things like that, can you? You can't force respect or love. You can only show respect and give love to hope to get it back. That's another question I often get from people. People ask me, have my own, my birth children, have they been jealous? Mm -hmm. And I can honestly say I have not seen or noticed any jealousy from any of you. I think you've all enjoyed it as much as I have to welcome someone else into our family. And it's been great, hasn't it? Absolutely. I feel like love is abundant. So would you recommend fostering to people? People sometimes explain to me why they don't foster even if I haven't told them to foster. I don't expect other people to foster at all. For me, it's been fantastic. I love it. And also it's given me this feeling of even if people can't have their own children, if they choose not to have them, 
there's other ways of bringing the same lovely feeling into your life, this caring and being cared for, because that's it. The boys care for me too. It's not just me caring for them. They care for me. They really do. So it's, that's fantastic, I think, that feeling. But whether I would recommend it? Yes, if you want children and if you're willing to, to put in a lot of effort, then yes, go for it. The very personal thing. What I would say, the courses to get to be a foster parent, I found quite rigorous. They really look into your life and your previous life. For me, that was like a bit... A bit intrusive. It was very intrusive. And it was the same for your dad. There were a few times that both of us said, really? But I wanted to do this so much that I persevered. I really wanted to do it. But I could imagine people being put off by that. Mum, can you think of any moments over the last four years since Mez first arrived? Because it's actually his four-year anniversary coming up in a couple of weeks, yeah. right? That have made you very proud or that have been standout for you? I've been proud so often of all of you guys, all of you. But it made me very proud when you did that event and he spoke for the first time. And I saw him speaking for the first time. I thought, oh my God, he's so brave to do that. And the same with Bijo, he did a assembly at his school I was more nervous than he was makes me so proud of these young kids they come to England and they just learn language and then they actually speak public speaking it's one of the biggest fears people have and they do it and not just about anything but about their own their own life story life story which is for all three of them traumatic yeah and the things they have been through I wouldn't I wouldn't wish it on anyone my heart bleeds for them and for their parents. A lot of people ask you or say to you, don't they? Oh, they must be so grateful. Yeah, grateful. People are always asking me, are they grateful, the boys? Are you really grateful when you have to leave everything behind? Everything? Your parents, your friends, your family, your clothes, your house, your culture. Everything, you know. And not because of your choice. That would be one thing. No, because you have to run. You have to run for your life. Yeah, they are grateful when they're safe, but it's hard as well. It's hard. Yeah, and I think gratitude and the hierarchy of gratitude is really interesting. It's like we expect gratitude from people arriving to this country or the refugees that we're talking of. But if we were in that situation, I don't know that we would feel grateful to have to leave and to run, as you say. I think I would be angry if I had to leave my country, yeah. wouldn't you? Not that I have noticed that in the boys. But if I think about me, if I had to leave my country. And mum, how have you found dealing with the trauma that you've been exposed to, the things that the boys have been through? They must have affected you. How have you processed that? So when they go through difficult times, I make it clear that I'm here for them. But I also know when to leave them alone. Maybe to be in their bedroom on their own or do their thing, whatever that would be. And they all go through phases of feeling really low. And they sometimes say to me, like Bijo might say to me at the moment, I'm feeling really bad. And I say to him, well, Bijo, it's not so surprising that you feel bad at times. You've been through a lot. A lot of things have changed in your life in the last year. Just be patient and you'll be okay. And it's just a mood. Moods come and go. They never last for very long. So, yeah, I've learned to be there for them, but not to get too deep into their feelings because I know it doesn't help them when I go down. If they're down and I go down, then where do we go from there?
The last thing I want to talk about is the asylum process. So you've been through that three times or two and a half times. We're still in the middle of the third asylum process. So basically when when they arrive to the UK, it doesn't automatically mean that they can stay, right? It's a waiting game. It makes them feel very insecure in the beginning because they're waiting, waiting, waiting. It goes through things like adapting to this new culture, new life, new family. But in the meantime, they know in the back of the head that any given time they might be sent back. That's the fear they have. But for all of them, the fear is very real because the fear it's a real is very possibility. Real. It's a real possibility. So whereas our justice system, we're innocent until proven guilty, when it comes to the asylum process, it seems to be the opposite way yeah. around. You're kind of guilty until yes. proven innocent. So yes. you really have to prove your case for staying. Yes. So they go very in-depth into each person's story. They're, the boys were all underage when they arrived and they have to go through a very structured Yes. Account of what happened to them, yeah. which is sometimes difficult when you involve trauma and when you're involving memory. Sometimes Very you block these things out. They might say things wrong. But there's not really much room for error in this situation. There's no right? room for error. I remember once with Mez, actually, when he had his first interview, he was quite proud that he already understood some English. So he didn't always wait for the interpreter who was at the time on the phone. And at a time he answered wrong. I think the question was, who did you leave with? Asking him who he left Eritrea with. But he understood it to be, who did you live with? So he said, with my mother and my father and my brothers and sisters, right? I knew he was giving the wrong answer, but I'm not allowed to speak when I'm in these interviews. So I was sitting there thinking, oh my God, this is all going bad. Yeah, (laughs) because they assumed that then he left with his family, which was not the case. He left alone. And where is the family? Right. Yeah. So they immediately presume it's, he's lying. Anyway, it all worked out fine because she, she understood in the end it was a mistake. But it's very easy to be mis- misunderstood or to be tricked. It's like they want to trick you. I sat into those interviews. I found it really hard to see them being put under the line of fire, basically, questioned and questioned and questioned. Mm-hmm. Really interrogated. Interrogated, yes. And I remember Mess got a little bit shirty when he was being questioned because it goes on for hours. And he's just, in the end, a normal teenage boy that says, well, I've already told you. And they're asked to do things like sing the national anthem. Well, to really prove where they're from. Yeah. Answer the questions like, what colour is the money in your country yes. or the school bus in your country? Or, and things I don't like, know about you, Jazz, but I wouldn't have a clue. Yeah, not, not to sing the national anthem or the Queen's birthday. I and think things like I that. can remember the first line of my national anthem and that's about it. <laughs> yeah. and, and the melody, the melody, that's it. <laughs> you could hum it. But anyway, they get asked really difficult questions and they are being put on the spot and it is a horrible feeling for them. And for Mez, the process went well and he was granted his asylum pretty smoothly. But for Arash, it didn't go so easily. No. So he was initially rejected. That was really hard. That was a really hard time for him especially, but for me as well. I had to see his anguish and that was massive, really massive. Thank God that the second time he was granted his asylum. But I don't know what would have happened if he'd had to go through that again. 
Mum, I'll never forget it because it just so happened timing wise that we've been waiting for this letter after he'd had his first interview Mm -hmm. for months and months, whether he was going to be granted or denied his asylum. Arash's family members had been killed by the Taliban. They'd all been killed. There was no one there for him. And no one. He had a very clear case. But I remember that you'd gone away on holiday um, in the summer without having received this letter because we didn't know how long we would be waiting. And I was looking after him as his relief carer. So I was here with him we got the letter and he had been denied and not only had he been denied his asylum he'd been given a date for when he would be deported back to Afghanistan back to Kabul and the reason was that there was not enough information about the dates that the Taliban tried to recruit him yeah as if you would remember all the times the Taliban come knocking on your door yeah and the dates (laughs) He was devastated yeah. and he just got to the point where he was sleeping better, that he was, yeah. you know, having a bit Karma. of routine and calmer, calmer mm-hmm. because he'd been suffering a lot from PTSD and yeah. that sent him right back into a spiral. He was suffering a lot, yeah. Fortunately, he had the support of us who were dogmatic in our approach when it came to making sure mm-hmm. that he got all of the support that he needed yeah. legally and et cetera, et cetera. And we went to court and you stood up and gave a character reference. He was successful in his appeal, but not every unaccompanied minor has that network around them. And you can feel very much alone, I think, very much alone. Uh, Not every unaccompanied minor is put with a family. Lots of them are living alone. Lots Mm -hmm. of them are sent to very remote places in the UK. Keep your eyes out, basically, in your own community, because I was not aware that there was an Eritrean community in Tunbridge, but actually yeah. I've learned very quickly that there are Eritreans yes. in this area, that there are Sudanese, that are Afghans. The mess had just been here a few weeks. I remember going to the supermarket and suddenly he was talking to this man. Uh, mess, do you know this man? And he's like, yeah, he's from my country. And uh, he asked Mess if he wanted to come to his house at Saturday. Do you remember? You took him there. I remember really well. Uh, But we didn't know this man. So we were like, "Uh, not sure, Mess. Can we come with you? I remember we were being served in prep once, me and Mez, and the girl behind the counter was Eritrean. They suddenly started talking and we got a free coffee. Uh, That's (laughs) nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, Mum, thank you so much for being guest number four on this podcast. My pleasure. I could, could be talking for hours here, I know, <laughs> we could talk about this for hours and there's so many stories and so many anecdotes mm. from these last four years yeah. that we've had with the boys. And good and mad ones. Good and bad. bad. and jolly ones, yeah. But I would say that the good outweigh the bad tenfold. We've had a lot of great times. And also, Mum, one thing that I'll never forget about those first initial few months with Mez when he was by your side all of the time before he was at school. I've never remembered you laughing so much as in those first few months. He really made you laugh, didn't he? And the learning was just an amazingly comical journey as well. His face, he could pull a face at me and look at me like, "Uh -uh, what's this child doing on a leave? (laughs) And I'd be cracking up. But I think that we've touched a lot on Mez's story this week and we will be hearing more in the next episode because our next guest is Mez. I hope you enjoyed this little insight into family life at our crazy house. If you did, please subscribe and leave a review. It will help me to keep sharing these important stories and amplifying these voices affected by the refugee crisis. I'd love to know your thoughts and what you'd like to ask Mez in our next episode. To let me know, head over to our Instagram account at the Worldwide Tribe, follow and leave me a comment or direct message. The more people who come on this journey with us, the more connected we all become and the more we unite as one worldwide tribe. Big thanks to Alexander Wells for composing our original music and mixing this episode.